Hello, and welcome to the Understanding Autism podcast, where we talk about issues related to those in the autism and greater neurodiverse communities. I'm your co-host, Brett Thayer. And I am Nicole Kabilis. Today's episode is about why people with autism have low frustration tolerance. We're going to talk about the signs of low frustration tolerance, the causes of low frustration tolerance, the strengths and struggles of having low frustration tolerance, when neurotypical people have low frustration tolerance, and what can be done to increase frustration tolerance. All right. Sounds sounds like a lot of fun. This is going to be great. Yeah. Try to, um, try to say low frustration tolerance five times in a row. Yeah. That's so, a tongue twister. <laughs> I know, isn't it? Um, so let's start by defining our terms. I'm sounding like such a teacher right now. All right. So <laughs> when we talk about frustration, frustration is the prevention of progress, success, or fulfillment of a goal. So frustration tolerance then is the ability to withstand obstacles and stressful situations. It's a form of emotional regulation. So therefore, low frustration tolerance is the inability to tolerate unpleasant or stressful situations. People with low frustration tolerance tend to be highly sensitive and easily overwhelmed. Um, many of our audience says, oh, okay, that sounds like me sometimes. Um, and frustration feels incredibly difficult to deal with. So signs of low frustration tolerance, and this comes from an article, What Low Frustration Tolerance Is and Three Ways to Manage It by Alea Cooks-Campbell. This will be in our uh, show notes. So signs of it include easily irritated when things don't happen the way you want them to. Does this sound like you? Uh, rigid or inflexible with plans. Losing patience easily with others or in circumstances. You're being bored. Constantly restless, um, you have a hard time pursuing things that don't involve immediate gratification, and small upsets trigger huge emotional reactions. The causes of low frustration tolerance besides autism are mental health conditions such as anxiety and depression, personality differences, and thinking patterns and belief systems. The causes of low frustration tolerance related to autism could be living in a state of chronic sensory overwhelm or overstimulation, struggles with communication and self-expression, especially with emotions, attachment to familiarity, routine, predictability, and order, perfectionism, either of people or of tasks, black and white thinking related to personal belief systems, mm -hmm. struggles with transitions, having to learn something challenging beyond their comfort zone, lack of emotional self-regulation and conflict management tools, struggles with understanding unspoken social rules, and completing a task that doesn't suit a natural learning style. Examples would be visual, kinesthetic, or auditory. Yeah, and I could just, just going back on one of your points, I can imagine that um, struggling with understanding unspoken social rules would be a big one, right? Because you, you don't know. And, and you have um, a situation where you're in a conversation or in a group activity or, or something, and then um, somebody says something and you're taking it the wrong way, and then it kind of spirals out, and then everybody is, is not happy. Yeah, yeah. And well, we'll, and I we'll think, talk about examples. Go and ahead. I think it's important to clarify that low frustration tolerance isn't exclusively an autistic experience. Oh, definitely. Everybody has a tolerance, uh, frustration tolerance threshold. And, you know, some autistic people may have tolerance for things that neurotypical people don't. Mm. Yeah. And I can, I can imagine, you know, the, the dinner 
table conversation at Thanksgiving with relatives, for example, low frustration mm -hmm. tolerance. Okay. Or, um, or technology. <laughs> yes, indeed. We'll get yeah. into examples. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so when can low frustration tolerance actually be a good thing? Well, um, you can strengthen self-advocacy skills for accommodations and better treatment. You're going to be, you know, more aware of, of your own personal needs and you're going to advocate for that. Um, you're more empowered to make healthy changes for a better quality of life. In the workplace, it can support with up, updating outdated policies, practice, practices, and tools. I can imagine it's like we do the same things over and over again and nobody's happy. We need to change this. Um, in education, specifically, it brings order and adherence to rules in the classroom. No tolerance for disorder or chaos. Um, a person with low frustration tolerance is more likely to set boundaries for themselves. And it increases the likelihood for collaboration with a team that has different strengths instead of, of someone that can just do it all and tells everybody what to do. All right. So on the reverse end is what are the struggles and consequences of having low frustration tolerance? Well, and this is a big one. Uh, learned helplessness in a victim complex. Nothing is going right. Nobody listens to me. If only everybody listens to me, things will get done. Um, increases episodes of anxiety and depression. Um, anger management issues, increased likelihood to get into conflicts with someone, um, experiencing alienation. Um, other struggles include loss of a job and close relationships, um, cockiness or self-assuredness, micromanagement, um, and setting high standards for themselves and others, perfectionism and being a workaholic in the workplace um, or at school, worsening overwhelm and overstimulation, and not being able to fulfill goals or giving up on them too early. So, Nicole, out of these, what has your experience been with low frustration tolerance? I was talking about earlier with technology, and I was thinking back to how, you know, autistic people naturally get technology and neurotypical people, you know, struggle with it. Not all, but, you know, most. Right. Right, right. And uh, and I can't tell you how many times my mom has come up to me just because I'm a millennial and she's like, mm -hmm. oh, help me with this tech thing. But I'm one of the few autistic millennials that gets so incredibly frustrated with technology. It mm -hmm. doesn't make sense to me. Everything that can go wrong does go wrong. Mm. And it's just something that I feel like I've never been able to overcome. Mm -hmm. um, and yet it's it's part of modern life. And so Definitely. I think when it comes to like learning new types of tech software, like for example, um, being an art teacher and especially teaching during COVID, like we had to learn how to teach online. And when you're somebody who struggles with technology and has low frustration tolerance for it, it's right. like, great. Like now my whole life is on this platform and you want to make sure it functions right because right. you don't want your students to get frustrated with you, or then your students have a problem that you don't know how to fix. Um, and I was even thinking back to, you know, being, you know, when you get evaluated and you have to send in all this data, like that's a whole technology obstacle. Mm. And so it's one of those things where I feel like I, I make it through, but I feel like I barely make it through. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I just mm -hmm. feel like I need a lot of support to get through it. And, and I don't know what it is, you know, I thought that maybe my brain just wasn't wired to understand technology, but my husband, who is good with technology, is convinced that I just don't have a lot of patience for it. So right, right. it could be both. Um, I, I have been known to, well, destroy a few oh, okay. expensive 
technology mm, things mm-hmm. in my childhood because of my frustration. Um, so <laughs> that's oh, definitely one of my big ones. Um, and I, I guess another one is if I have to do a task that I must achieve to a high standard without mm-hmm. any prior experience doing it. Oh, and, for sure. you know, I mean, I can think of so many different examples, like you take a college class, like for me, uh, you know, when you get your degree in art education, even though you do end up specializing in something, you still have to take, you know, different classes outside of your, you know, focus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're kind of expected to do well, but you've never done any of those things. So there's, right, right. you know, pressure there. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember, like, I used to work for a like a startup autism organization that supports people in the workplace. Mm -hmm. I had to do, because it was a startup, I had to do marketing. I had to do social media stuff. I had to do a lot of tech stuff. And, uh, and so I think that there was this pressure of like, I have to get this right because that's what people expect of a new company. And I think Mm -hmm. what I've learned, especially from like starting this podcast is like, it's okay if it isn't 100% to like a high standard when you're starting right. out. Right. Um, but I think when you're being supervised and you have this authority figure that's saying, you know, I want you to do this, even if they are being compassionate and patient, there's still that anxiety of like, oh, great, I have to do this new thing. And then when you do something that you think is easy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then, you know, like for example, with our podcast, like setting up Instagram was way harder than it should have been. Right. So, you know, I get really frustrated with things that should be easy, should be intuitive, Mm -hmm. but for some reason there's an obstacle. Right. And sometimes it has to do with things that are out of my control. And sometimes it has to do with the limitation of my own skills. But, you know, you can't help feeling frustrated. Um, When I was younger, I used to get really frustrated with I would say like, you know, perfection in a way that's pretty common for people with autism. Um, mm-hmm. So if I if I had clothes that had holes or stains in them, like I couldn't tolerate it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me, I don't know if it's a visual thing or if it's like a a tactile thing of like if there's bare skin and a pair of jeans and it's mm-hmm. cold, like I don't like feeling cold in that one part of my body. Mm-hmm. Or so like, you would never wear ripped jeans then? Oh, no. <laughs> I've never worn whip, ripped jeans. Um, and then like stains, like, I don't know. I mean, I uh, if it's little, it's one thing. But like if I had a huge stain, it's like, all right, <laughs> that's getting pitched. Um, I'm also really like picky about the the perfectionism of my books. So I don't mm. like, you know, like if I if I have a book in a backpack and it gets folded, like. Mm that frustrates me and it, and it's gotten okay. better like i've i've learned through mindfulness to kind of like learn to tolerate imperfection but as a kid that would drive me up a wall yeah that um, makes sense. you know t- having books that were worn or old or already had writing in them that kind of thing interesting yeah um i definitely get low frustration tolerance with misplacing important objects around the house yeah, which has to do that. with, uh, you know, object permanence and working memory. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing 
I, I just learned that I struggle with is uh, knitting and crocheting. Mm-hmm. Um, and for, I would say like, you know, the same thing. It's like, I, I try to figure it out. I use the book, I use the YouTube videos and I just, for some reason, it's like, okay, well, I'm doing it exactly like the video tells me to, but it's not looking the same on my end. Mm. And then I end up like throwing everything across the right, room right, in a fit. Right. And I, and I realized that, um, I, I can do it, but I need somebody physically there to kind of tell me what mm-hmm. I'm doing wrong. Um, and, and I like being able to kind of like, you know, if somebody's doing it next to me, I like to be able to hold what they're doing or like get up close. Whereas like with a YouTube right. video, like, so, so it, it comes down to like certain ways that you learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like, you know, I guess the last thing kind of for me is, uh, I have a really strong moral compass. I'm very mm-hmm. passionate about social justice. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is common for people with autism, you know, in addition to those struggles of like not understanding the hidden social agenda, Mm-hmm. It's sort of like when there are these rules, especially when it comes to equity and fair treatment and inclusion, and mm-hmm. people are not treating people fairly, um, you know, I think that it it upsets me um, mm-hmm. because it feels like this double standard, like, wow, people are micromanaging me to mm-hmm. meet, you know, social rules, all the social rules, but yet the people around me aren't held accountable to the same amount of standards. And I think that that comes down to, you know, complex dynamics related to privilege. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I also get really frustrated with people that abuse their authority, you know, Mm. teachers, especially teachers and and Mm -hmm. bosses, that kind of thing. Um, And I think the, not that this is like related to me, but like I've had friends with autism in the past and I've been on the receiving end of their low frustration tolerance, and I would say it has really affected my friendship with them. Mm. So people with autism get can get hurt very easily by innocent, well-intentioned comments that mm. might not mean anything to the other person. And just as as much as it can happen with neurotypical people, you know, autistic people can make innocent, well-intentioned comments. And instead of the other person expressing how they feel, setting boundaries, or having a conflict resolution conversation, the person Mm. with autism will just cut the friendship off. And this was really hard for me because I struggle with social perfectionism as a trauma of, oh, if my autism shows, I'm going to experience collateral social loss. And when you think it's bad with neurotypical people, it's even worse with mm-hmm. people with autism, because literally it's like, you could say anything that really isn't harmless. And because the person with autism doesn't know how to problem solve through that thing that felt hurtful, they're mm-hmm. just like, that's it, I'm done. It's mm-hmm. over. That um, makes sense. Yeah. And then, you know, and then I lose out on the ability to have a conversation that's like, hey, can you tell me what I did wrong? And, you know, I right. don't even have an opportunity to apologize or mm-hmm. or to be able to explain, like, here's my intention. And yet, you know, I understand how that impacted you. So let's talk about it. So that right. whole reaction comes from black and white thinking and highly sensitive feelings. And there really isn't gray area thinking that the other person wasn't malicious and that there is a chance to mend the relationship. and. This had happened with so many 
friends I had with autism that it honestly made me really appreciate my neurotypical friends because I really felt like my best friends that are neurotypical are incredibly patient with mm. all sorts of neurodiverse quirks and struggles that I have. And so I think being able to have friends that can model that ability to be patient, mm -hmm. to model, you know, hey, let's let's talk about this and process this. I'm right. not mad at you. Let's let's have an opportunity to uh, restore the situation. Um, I think that has taught me, like, how do I model that to my friends with autism? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I and I know we're going to talk later in the podcast about, you know, dealing with students and low frustration tolerance. But I was thinking like when you have restorative conversations as a teacher, mm -hmm. I think that those restorative conversations can also be really hard for people with autism because it's so vulnerable to get to that place of processing emotions and trying to understand where the other person's coming from when that might be a challenge for somebody with autism. Mm -hmm. um, and like, you know, feeling like they need to take responsibility and apologize when maybe they don't feel that that's what they should do. And right. so, you know, the simplest thing to do is just dig your heels and say, yep, no, I'm done, you know, push it away. Right, right. Um, and I think about, you know, my struggles with technology, I do the same thing. Like it's either I'm gonna have a meltdown or I'm just gonna say, that's it, I'm done. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm walking away, I'm never gonna deal with this again. And so I think that's something that parents and, you know, teachers and anybody in a support system with a mm -hmm. person with autism needs to be aware of, um, because that can make it really challenging for any sort of restoration to occur. And, and I think mm -hmm. that there needs to be a conversation with people with autism about what does a restorative conversation look like, you know, because right. that's just an important life skill. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So how has your son, Josh, experienced low frustration tolerance? Well, so as a, as a child in school, I mean, it goes back to kind of what you were saying. You know, you, you have expectations for yourself and then you have um, the teacher's expectations for you as well. So if things aren't going well and you're frustrated and um, the teacher is coming over and saying this isn't going well, you need to change. I mean, that kind of builds on each other. So I think that's a lot of what Josh's experiences was um, in elementary school. It's just trying to figure things out and trying to figure out how to get things done without, you know, and turn things in to the, to the level that they needed to be so that he was happy with that and the teacher was happy with that. And I think over time, that was a really difficult thing for kids to learn, especially somebody who's on the, on the spectrum. Right. You know, what what do I need to do? Um, what do I need to prove? Uh, what do things do I need to turn in? How do I need to turn it in? All of the rules and procedures is what students on the spectrum are trying to learn, just like any other student. Um, but throw in autism and throw in the teacher's expectations on top of that and parents expectations on top of that. And then you have this this cauldron of frustration and blowups and meltdowns and all of these things can can happen and they did. So of course, so Joshua was easily frustrated at school when things weren't going well or wasn't going as planned. Um, and, and an early example would be 
you know, um, in preschool kind of thing, you know, this is when we first learned that he, he could have autism is that, um, he was in the, his own kind of world and playing and rules and things like that. And other, the, the teacher would describe that other people could come in to that world that he was in and follow his rules and everything was fine. But when they wanted to change the rules or, or change something in, in a different way, then he was frustrated and there was a meltdown. Right. So those were some examples of his um, frustration tolerance. But I kind of feel like even neurotypical kids can feel that way. Like, oh, definitely. Yeah, for sure. You know, I remember, you know, being a kid and playing with, you know, kids from my childhood and, and neurotypical kids would get frustrated about like, you know, I want to do it this way, you know. Right. So I don't know. I mean, no, I, th I think, yeah, I mean, it's. When we talk about autism and we talk about neurotypical um, people, we're, we're often talking about the same experiences, right? But um, having autism and the different way that the autistic mind works compounds some things and makes it more difficult. So all of these things we're talking about, especially low frustration tolerance, we all feel. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a compounded in um, um, people with it on the spectrum. So I'm curious to ask you, as a parent of a millennial Gen Z age young adult and a teacher, do you feel like technology gratification has impacted low frustration tolerance? Do you feel like, you know, kids in millennial and Gen Z eras tend to get more frustrated with things because of maybe like an instant gratification that technology creates? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it that depends on the person. Do they get sucked in by technology? Do they get sucked in by um, all of these social apps and things like that? And do they get frustrated when things don't go well or or not? It, it, I would say that kind of depends on on the person, right? But I think having um, the social web that we have makes it easy to get sucked into that. Um, and then managing your relations online. I, I would say that you know, sometimes if if we, I don't know, I mean, if we look at people with um, autism and their core friend groups, for example, do they have a, a wide set of core friend groups or is it, you know, a few? And is that compounded by social media and how they interact online? You know, I really, that I really don't know how um, people manage their their relationships online and if that adds frustration or if that makes it easier. Yeah. How about, how about you? Well, you know, so there was a recent South Park episode that came out about um, all the students use chat GPS mm -hmm. to write their essays. Okay. And then, and then the, the teacher uses chat GPS to, to grade all of the mm. students essays so that they don't have to do the work. Right. And I, and I was watching it with my husband and I was like, I feel like this is actually going to be a thing right. um, using AI to like complete homework. And, and I'm like, how do, how do teachers even like catch that? You know, cause I, I feel like, you know, um, a lot of math teachers or world language teachers, like they try to use that sort of traditional thinking, you know, mm. like don't use a calculator or don't use like Google calculator, right. you know, like make sure that you, know how to do it in your head or write it down on paper. Sure. And I think that like, I don't want to say that like engaging with things on paper is foreign to kids, but I feel mm -hmm. like 
there's this feeling of why would I do all that work if the computer can just do it for me? Right. And even and like hmm. as an adult, like I I use Google Calculator for simple mm -hmm. math and because it's quicker and and uh, and and I guess like to me, I don't feel like the use of technology to accomplish tasks has affected my frustration tolerance. But I have noticed as an art teacher that I'll have like neurotypical students who I think sometimes the the frustration tolerance comes from like art being very like gray, like there isn't this black and white step by step. This is what you do to get right. it done. Right. Um, I think there are some kids who are more familiar with digital art. Um, mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, uh, my mom has a neighbor who she has like an eight year old daughter and uh, the app she has, it's like a quote unquote coloring book on mm -hmm. an app, but like, but she just kind of like swipes it haphazardly and the app mm -hmm. fills in the image perfectly and photorealistically. And then when the, when the image is done, it feigns like a bunch of hearts will show up and it gives the kid the impression that like there's other people kind of like social media being like, I like this art. And I was like, I was like, well, that's going to be an issue when they're in an art class and then they right. have to like make art on their own and it doesn't look like the way it looks on an iPad. Mm -hmm. right, and right. so, and then I think like my high school students get frustrated with like, you can't control Z the, the mistakes right, right, on right. your, on your paper. Um, and then I think like, I don't know. I think that there's another piece of it where there's an instant gratification of like, I did what I think is best and that gets an A and mm -hmm. then the teacher grades it differently and right. then the kid has low frustration of like, you know, why is that? And so I, I think that, I think sometimes technology decreases that, that problem solving ability at times. Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, so I think, you, yeah, no, 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 you go. So, yeah, I mean, if, if we're going to talk about, you know, AI and teaching, I mean, that's the current dilemma that educators are finding themselves in. So um, one, one way is to have a conversation with students about when, when technology is appropriate to use in the classroom and when it's not. And so it's always a balancing act. So when, when we talk about AI in the classroom and, you know, okay, so I'm frustrated with how my teacher grades. So I'm just going to have this computer program do it for me and I'm going to turn it in. So low frustration for me, it's done. You know, right? I don't have to do anything, um, but we're not learning anything. So we have mm -hmm. to have a conversation with students that say, okay, technology is a tool. It's not replacing what needs to be done. It's helping you to get things done and there are appropriate ways to use technology and there's inappropriate ways to use technology. And mm -hmm. having that conversation, giving students examples, um, if you're having assessments, right, that's in class, you got to prove it. it. There's no computer. It's a pen and paper. That, this is me old school thinking. Pen and paper, go ahead and do it. Let me see what you can do. Um, when we're doing a group project and you're looking on the internet for some things, now it's a different conversation. What can you pull in? You're not using technology to do the project for you. You're using technology to help to get the project done. And then we as, as a teacher, we can collaborate on what that looks like and what level um, that you're in using technology to get the project done. But we have to have those conversations and we have to have exemplars. We have to give our kids and our students exemplars of 
you know, this is good and this is acceptable and this is not good. This is unacceptable mm -hmm. just to go. So we could, yeah, you know, as teachers, we could go off on that one for that's a yeah. whole other podcast. Anyway. Well, yeah. And, and I guess my closing thought before we move on on that topic is I think because people with autism do get so engrossed in technology, mm -hmm. you know, minus me. Um, but I think that that's why screen time is so important to be regulated, because mm. if if you are sucked into the digital world, you know, through video games, through your phone, through, you know, PCs, whatever, you know, there's a certain way that things get accomplished and things get finished that is can be so different mm -hmm. from the way that the physical world operates. And I think that can create a lot of low frustration. Um, and then, of course, the fact that, like, you know, that much screen time really strains your eyes. So I think that's why it's really important for parents and teachers to modify, like, how often you're engaging with technology mm -hmm. to really mm -hmm. teach the kid that, like you said earlier, there's more than one way to achieve something. And then also, like, technology right. isn't always reliable. And so mm -hmm. if the autistic person is used to computers, you know, achieving the task and then mm -hmm. the computer crashes and then the kid's like what do i do well that requires a certain level of problem solving and flexible thinking um that that person needs to get through that struggle so i think that if parents can sort of strike that balance as well as teachers i think mm -hmm. that that can you know and again like it's it's how are we teaching that creative problem solving and flexible thinking so that you know we're not having a bunch of kids that are walking around with temper tantrums. Right. All right. So what happens if the parent of a child with autism has low frustration tolerance? What so could possibly go wrong? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so, and, and the thing is, like, if you are a parent that has experienced, you know, frustration challenges with your child in general, not just your child with autism, that's just, part of, that's just part of parenting. You know, yes, you do is. the best you can with the tools you have. And when you parent a child with autism, most of the time parents don't even um, have the, uh, you know, the tools. Right. So, right. Um, so anyway, um, the parent is unable to co-regulate the child when he or she is experiencing sensory overwhelm or emotional distress, which... I will speak for my mom. She felt like it was an endless amount of sensory overwhelm mm -hmm. or emotional mm -hmm. distress. And there was rarely, I guess at least when I was a toddler, it rarely felt like there were times when she had a break because right, I was right, regulated. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, because if the parent has low frustration tolerance, then that's also modeling low frustration tolerance for the child yeah, that's true, when it huh? comes to stressful circumstances. Um, you know, the parent can also have black and white thinking patterns for rigid belief systems. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, parents can have high standards for perfection and overachievement, especially if the goal is to mask or cure autism. In other words, not accepting the child's neurodiversity. And I see this a lot, like even today, I think that parents cling so desperately to what they feel I don't want to say is an acceptable child, but when when you have a lot of fear of I want my child to be independent, I want my child to be successful, it mm -hmm. has to look a certain way on their own terms. 
And mm. that can be, I think when you're grappling with autism, where it feels foreign, the the path of predictability for that child's future isn't set in stone the way that maybe a neurotypical child's is, mm. you know, clinging on to those beliefs is like that, that form of structure and predictability that that keeps them patient, flexible, trusting. Um, but ultimately, that does lead to low frustration tolerance because you're not meeting your child where they're at. Mm. You're just continually getting angry that your standards are not being met. And, and it's a complicated thing. It doesn't mean that parents are bad. It just means that we all have our ways of coping with challenges and our belief system is a very big part of that. Yeah, um, that makes sense. And though raising a child with autism is incredibly challenging for all parents, regardless mm -hmm. of where they are in the spectrum, having a low frustration tolerance is going to dysregulate the child and make them feel ashamed of themselves. Mm. Um, I also want to add, because this isn't on our script, I think that the diagnosis also has, makes a really big difference with the frustration tolerance. I've read a lot and talked to a lot of adults who are diagnosed later in life where, you know, the parent is like, you know, why aren't you acting this way? And it's and it's mm -hmm. not even that they have a standard, but it's like they don't have a frame of reference right. of why that child is going through that struggle. And then when they get that autism diagnosis, the parents are like, oh, that's what's going on. And there's right. that sense of relief of like, all right, now I have a set of tools. Now I have people mm -hmm. to talk to. Um, and so it can kind of go both ways. Like the diagnosis can create low frustration tolerance because mm -hmm. of the the struggles to accept the child you have. But then on the flip side, you know, you know something's going on, but there isn't a black and white, like what exactly is happening right. with my child? There's no rule and, book, right? Yeah. And and people with autism often do get my, misdiagnosed and that can create confusion and frustration as well. Right. And there's degrees of autism, right? So, I mean, autism is a spectrum. So, you know, what what tools do you have and what tools as a parent can you employ to help your child is yeah. that that's going to vary. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So Brett, did you have some frustrating challenges raising Josh? And if so, how did you cope with it? Yes. Yeah, so uh, we had our battles definitely. So as in a, in a previous uh, podcast, we talked about meltdowns, shutdowns, self-harming behavior. And so as a parent, it was confusing to me, meltdown versus tantrum. And I thought, you know, those were interchangeable and they were not. And so because of that, we had our battles. So Joshua would be having a meltdown and he'd be screaming at me and I'd be screaming at him and um, nobody was having a good time. So it, you know, is a variety of circumstances would cause these things. And it got to the point where in one case, and I remember this very distinctly, um, because this is completely my fault that we had to go somewhere and so i'm loading the kids in the car and i have my older kid and and i have josh in there and he's having a tantrum for whatever or tantrum see this is my bias again so he's having a meltdown and so he's losing it and then i'm losing it and um i'm backing out and i'm not paying attention and i run into another car right and so right there is like okay Here's clearly what's happening. I am not being a good model. I don't know what's happening. I'm not being empathetic to my son. 
and clearly I'm taking on all of this and to the point where I am making mistakes and it's, these are mistakes that are going to cost me. And so at that point, it's like, all right, I need to fix me before I can even help my son at all. So then it was becoming, okay, how do I, how do I do this? How do I manage my frustration tolerance and, and those kinds of things? And then, then it took the point where, okay, let's say that um, both of us are just agitated. Um, then it was like, all right, we just need to separate. Both of us need to have a timeout. So he would have his timeout in one area of the, the, the house, and I would have my timeout. So we just both calm down, and then we can come back to a place where, okay, we're calm, it's over, let's talk about what happened and, and try to figure things out. So the other thing is, um, as a parent, I learned how to listen to my child, how to recognize those symptoms of escalation, and uh, learn what the triggers were, right? And so, you know, as my son is getting frustrated and I see he's getting frustrated, then I could intervene. I could um, break the, the mindset. We could do something else. We could change behavior. I could be less rigid in what I felt that we had to do as a family in time frames, right? I could let go of that. That would help. So I had to learn all of these different things to employ. And one of the biggest things that I learned was listening, watching and then reacting and reflecting hmm. so that that's it in a nutshell but yes we definitely had our our battles so how I, about I you like, go ahead well and i like what you said about um you need to work on you before definitely. you can help your son and i think that's just parenting in general mm -hmm. um you know and and i and i will say like as an adult child you know i mean there are times my parents and I have had tiffs and I've had to learn, like, I can't always change them. And so I have to, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. change myself. And, and it is hard, you know, when as an autistic person, you're always pressured to change who you are. And you just get to the point where you're like, when am I, when is it okay for me to be me? But I've mm -hmm. kind of realized, I think parents feel the same way. They're like, why can't I just why when is it okay to be me why do i always have to do all this work to change right right um and and i think that it's kind of a balancing act you know i think that there's a little bit of accountability on the parents end and then there's a little bit of accountability on the kids end and mm -hmm. and i think the tricky thing about meltdowns and tantrums is that you don't want to enable it by just being like oh whatever like you know i don't want to fight this like the kid gets what they want all the time. So then they mm -hmm. get normed to realize like, I can get out of this by having a tantrum. And that's not a healthy coping mechanism for them because then their mm -hmm. body is constantly in distress as a way to seek relief rather than, you know, having flexible thinking or realizing that they have autonomy of choice to vocalize, hey, I wanna do this or that differently. So it, and I'm not a parent. You know, but I can only try to empathize with like what my parents have gone through talking to other parents that are in the mm -hmm. autism community that it's really not easy. And sometimes you really do have to pick your battles. Um, yes. And I do think I think that part of the autism parenting journey is about the acknowledgement that it's hard and there mm -hmm. will be low frustration tolerance. But the that low frustration tolerance, you know, besides, you know, your own temperament is coming from you're in your you're out of your element. Right. And so what do you do to 
you know, to create that familiarity of what autism and neurodiversity is rather than mm -hmm. trying to make the child adjust to what is familiar to you. And that, and that's right, really, right. that's really hard to do. Um, yeah. How about I, you? Well, one follow-up question I wanted to ask you is okay. how do you think raising a child with autism increased your frustration tolerance, like with, with him, with your other child, with teaching in general? Right. So, um, as, as I learned how to, uh, look for, you know, behavior cues and things like that, I think it translated to my classroom and translated to parenting later, you know, like I said, to listen, to look for cues, to, um, be able to really figure out, okay, what is really important here? I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. If I'm, if I'm looking at it from my own personal point of view and what's going to frustrate me, then, then I ask the question, you know, what, what part of this is frustrating? Is it my expectations? Is it somebody else's expectations? Is it uh, my perceived constraints? And what, what of those are in my control to change, right? If these things are causing me frustration, what is it in my control to change those parameters so I cause myself less, less frustration. So for example, and we'll talk about this as a teacher point of view and things like that. So, you know, I could, I could have that conversation with myself to try to manage my own, my own frustration quantities. And then that could translate to parenting and that can translate it to relationships, right? And it's just learning how to listen and learning how to let go of things that are frustrating you about mm -hmm. other circumstances or other people. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a really big, like, I don't know, like in a positive way, it really transforms you in ways and directions that you didn't think you could access. Well, you know, I mean, you have this circumstance as a parent, you have a, a, a child that's on the spectrum and clearly he needs support. And mm -hmm. so what are you going to do? Right. Yeah. Are you going to, you just react or are you going to um, be positive and try to figure out what can I do to address the situation? How can I be helpful to my child? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay. How about you? How your, your experiences with your parents? Um, so this I do want to say my, this should be fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, my, I do want to start off by saying that my parents were awesome. I felt like I had mm -hmm. a lot of financial support, Good. um, a lot of emotional support. Um, I really feel like I, I, couldn't have asked for a better upbringing when it comes to being an autistic child, having needs and my parents being receptive to those needs. Um, awesome. Both of my parents did respond to the autism differently. Mm -hmm. um, my mom, my mom didn't work. And so she was the one that really carried the burden mm. of caregiving. So mm -hmm. uh, I was actually diagnosed with autism six weeks before my brother was born. Mm. And, you know, can you imagine you're about to have your second child and all of a sudden, you know, my right. mom at the time didn't even know whether or not I was going to have severe autism. So mm -hmm. that was, it was pretty overwhelming for her. And then five years later, my brother got diagnosed with type one diabetes. Oh, wow. And, um, so that was, that was a lot on my mom, um, mm -hmm. to care, to care for both of those, uh, circumstances. I think the fact that she didn't have to work really allowed her to be fully engaged and active in 
networking and seeking out support for both of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what I, what I noticed about her, which I, I I think is normal for most parents, I I feel like as a toddler, you know, I I do feel like my mom hit her fuse a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just kind of hitting her edge when I oh, had definitely. meltdowns over the t- all the time. And I think when I was younger, I took that personally, but as an adult and especially having been a teacher and thinking about having kids of my own, I'm like that's really understandable, especially as I'm getting to that age when mm-hmm. she had me. Um mm-hmm. And then I think like probably right around when my brother and I were element in elementary school, I got the sense that my mom kind of had it figured out and mm-hmm. she was a lot more even keel. I mm-hmm. really felt like nothing. It took a lot to ruffle her feathers um, mm-hmm. when when she kind of hit her stride uh, with with me and my brother. So the thing that really stood out to me with my mom is I was reading the Highly Sensitive Person series as a way to understand my own autism and my highly sensitive tendencies. And there was this book called The Highly Sensitive Parent. Mm. And I would strongly recommend, oh, I don't think it's called The Highly Sensitive Parent. I think it's called The Highly Sensitive Child. Um, So we'll have that book in the show notes. But they have two chapters that talks about what do you do if you're the highly sensitive parent? And what do you do if you're the non-sensitive parent? And Mm. I was reading that chapter and I was like, oh my God, my mom is a highly sensitive parent. Mm. Um, And I I guess it made sense to me that her fuse maybe hit a little bit quicker Mm -hmm. um, because she was very emotionally sensitive. She might've had overwhelm a little bit easily. I don't want to say that her high sensitivity is the same as uh, a neurodiverse person. Right. Um, but I, I think that she is an emotionally sensitive person. And and I think, you know, emotionally sensitive people are very attuned to their kids' mm. needs. And because they're very attuned and maybe they get overstimulated by, you know, a child's highly distressed emotions, that mm-hmm. can be really hard. Now, mm-hmm. in saying that, I I think that, my mom was very attuned to my needs and she was a fantastic parent because of mm-hmm. that. And I think what I admire about her is that even if she was sensitive, she was extremely resilient. Mm. You know, she she never really gave up on what do I do to help my child? And, you know, she just dedicated all of her energy to find as many resources as possible. So the fact that That's she great. just kept fighting the battle, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think some parents just don't have that kind of stamina. So Mm -hmm. I really respect her for that. Um, And one thing that we had talked about recently was that back in the 90s, she's like, there wasn't a lot of resources about autism. So she, it was like, I I don't remember the organization that diagnosed me, but it was like, all right, so I got this diagnosis. Well, what do we do next? And it was like, right. oh, call this person. You know, so it's like there's barely even people to talk to about right. autism. And then, you know, within that, there's like a small network of resources when it comes to speech therapy, behavior therapy, occupational therapy. So she's just like, you know, talk about lack of structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
my mom had said, God, if, if I had the resources of YouTube and podcasts and right, right. autism society, she was like, that journey would have been significantly less stressful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, and I think that like we've, she, her perception of autism has changed a lot with me having conversations as an adult and being able to reflect on things in the past and go, oh, I think this is why I had meltdowns. And then mm -hmm. she goes, oh, okay, now that makes sense. So, right, right. um, yeah, I, I think her journey with parenting was pretty normal. Um, so my dad was sort of opposite, we'll say in certain ways. So my dad was the breadwinner mm -hmm. and he felt like he was doing his part by bringing in the money, which was, you know, between money he brought in and my grandparents on my mom's side, that was covering all of my, um, all of my care. Mm -hmm. And to my dad's credit, he worked very, very hard. He, he was involved, like he definitely loved us and, mm -hmm. you know, cared for us. He wasn't involved in the process of getting educated about autism mm -hmm. and uh, talking to specialists like my mom was. Now, that's not to say he just checked out. It just means right, right. like my mom had a way bigger understanding about autism mm -hmm. than he did. Mm -hmm. And so what I noticed is... I, I guess mainly more as I got older, not so much when I was a kid, but like when I was a teenager and young adult, mm -hmm. if I if I had a tantrum or I was having, you know, social anxiety or struggles, my dad would kind of go to this assumption that like, that's not how people your age act. Right. And so there was kind of this discipline mm -hmm. of, you know, you need to act the way your age is. And that mm. came from this belief that by the time I reached kindergarten and didn't need all of that intensive autism therapy, that mm -hmm. I would therefore no longer have autistic struggles. And that right. was back when like the uh, curing autism was like a really big thing. So, mm -hmm. uh, I, and again, like I'm not faulting my dad. I think the communication back then about mm -hmm. autism and especially autism in adults it wasn't really there. You know, the conversation was your kids struggles. Let's mm -hmm. help them with their struggles. So they'll never go through those struggles again. So right. I think it was harder for my dad than my mom to come to terms with Nicole still struggles as an adult. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I remember, you know, having struggles with transitions and he'd be like, Oh, you know, maybe you just have a self-esteem issue. And I'm like, mm. no, that's not what it is at all. And so there was this constant disconnect of like, right. he, not only that he wasn't really in the flow of what autism is, mm -hmm. but also like he didn't even know what autism looked like in adults. And right. so I think that kind of made it hard. But I think that, you know, I don't want to say that that negatively impacted our relationship. I think it mm -hmm. just took me being very transparent about mm -hmm. here are my struggles. Here's why I struggle to get mm -hmm. my dad educated. Um, and I'm definitely seeing that like when you're a kid, your parents put in a lot of effort to do the research. And then once you you become an adult, they're like, oh, I don't need to do any research anymore. Mm -hmm. So 
I think it's been hard for me to accept that I still have to continue to educate them because right. they're not going to put in their effort. And I guess it's fair, you know, they're retired and they're empty nesters and they don't sure. want to take that parenting burden on. Um, but having that continuous educa uh, educational conversation about autism is important mm -hmm. so that they know how to support me as an adult and mm -hmm. understand that the journey of autism isn't about curing or fixing or right. that, you know, I'm seeking out support for myself. So what do they do secondarily to mm -hmm. help me out through the process? No, those are um, great points. And then the other thing that I, I learned, especially after being married to my husband, my husband is a very patient, emotionally grounded person, and he's mm -hmm. also very logical and pragmatic. He's a great problem solver. Mm -hmm. He does not add fuel to the fire. Um, you know, we've known people in our lives where it's like one person gets upset and then that upsets the other person. Right, and right, then right. they just He's really good about, you know, keeping a certain composure where mm -hmm. if I'm upset and he's mellow, I start to calm down. Right. And I've realized I, I need people like that in my life um, because when I get emotionally hijacked, I, I can't access that logical problem solving that I want to. So having that person in my life helps. Mm -hmm. My parents don't have that level of patience that my right, husband right. does. And, and I don't fault them for that. That's just part of their temperament. Mm -hmm. um, I also think, you know, in having observed, you know, as a teacher, you know, when you observe parents and you observe kids and um, you observe, you know, significant others, I think everybody has a certain threshold of tolerance when dealing with mental health distress. Definitely. Um, you know, so people with autism have mental health distress. My mental health distress is usually rooted in anxiety. And so um, I notice that when I get really uh, escalated, my parents mm -hmm. also get very escalated. Mm. And I think my my dad's default reaction is like, you know, oh, well, you're you're overreacting over nothing or right, you know, right. this, people your age aren't supposed to act this way. Mm -hmm. Or I remember, you know, during my first year of teaching, like I I was having really bad overwhelm. Mm -hmm. I I got a flat tire. I called my dad and I was like, I don't know what to do. And he's like, well, here are these ideas. And I kept saying like, no, that doesn't work. And, and I just kept getting frustrated with him because right. it was like, Stop telling me to do something that I know isn't going to work in the situation. And and then he kept saying, you know, well, people your age aren't supposed to talk that way and don't talk to mm. your dad that way. And then he just got to the point where he's like, that's it. I'm done. I'm not talking. You know, I'm not going to mm -hmm. talk to you if you act like a kid. And then that further sent me into a meltdown mm -hmm. because it was like, I'm not acting like a, a little child. Like I right. am in legitimate adult distress because of the the level of right. my nervous system. So I I guess like especially in in researching for this podcast, I realized, oh, low frustration tolerance, everybody has that. Right. My parents have that. Yes. And I think that, you know, frustration tolerance changes like especially when you have an adult child and you're like, I don't want to go back to this parenting place. Mm -hmm. You know, especially if you have a child right. in their late 20s and 30s, you just yeah, want to be an adult like, now. Yeah, you exactly. Yeah. You know, figure it out. So mm -hmm. like in sharing all of this, like 
I don't have any sort of like ill feelings towards my parents. I I think that I'm at a point where I'm able to mindfully say, oh, this is how they operate. Mm -hmm. I accept that this is how they operate. Mm -hmm. I believe that they can build their frustration tolerance by me educating them when I'm calm on -hmm. how to help me. Um, But the other thing that I've had to learn is like for certain struggles, I can't go to my parents Mm. either because they don't have the emotional grounding I need Mm -hmm. or they don't have the answers that I'm looking for. Mm. And that's part of being an adult. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that I don't like my parents or distrust them. It just means that when you're seeking resources to, to help you get through a problem, your parents can help you with some things, but they can't help you with all things, you know? Um, yeah. And so I, I think again, it's, I think it's important when you have low frustration tolerance to be able to, to network yourself with people, uh, you know, again, like, when finding a significant other or finding mentors, like it's really mm-hmm. important for me to have a very grounded, logical, you know, person in my life. My best friends are all calm, rational, pragmatic, problem solving and grounded. Mm-hmm. And I think when it comes to my parents, I've learned what circumstances can I go to them for help where they have the capacity to be calm rational, Mm -hmm. pragmatic, and grounded, and also talk to them at a time where they're not like, oh, I'm rushing to go do this. And now all of a sudden I got to help you because you're in crisis. So, so I think it's about, you know, connecting with my parents when they are the most Mm. resourced rather than, you know, being like, all right, I'm distressed. I'm going to immediately go to my parents and catch them off guard. Yeah, that's, that makes sense too. Okay, we've come to the end of part one of this episode. Yeah, we had a lot to talk about, as we always do in all of our episodes. We just want you to be as researched as possible. So stay tuned for part two. Uh, We're going to talk about low frustration tolerance as it relates to how that impacts teachers, whether those teachers are supporting autistic students or you are an autistic educator experiencing low frustration tolerance. Um, as well as how do you support a student who is experiencing low frustration tolerance? And lastly, how do you figure out low frustration tolerance in the workplace? All right, follow Understanding Autism on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to receive updates on our upcoming podcast episodes. I also make artwork and poetry to promote each episode, which if you can't find it on social media, it is also on our website, which is understandingautism.info. Mm -hmm. Subscribe to Understanding Autism on YouTube and listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, etc. Like, subscribe, and leave a comment. If you have questions for us, post them on our Facebook group or email us at brettandnicole at understandingautism.info. All right. Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next week. Until then, I am Brett Thayer. And I'm Nicole Cabillas. Bye.